A man came to me and said, I found a nice girl for you. She lives in the next village, and she is ready for marriage. We were not supposed to meet until the wedding, but I wanted to make sure. So I sneaked into her village, hid behind a tree, watched her washing the clothes. I think if I don't like the way she looks, I don't marry her. But she looked really nice to me. So I said, okay, to the man. We get married. We married for 55 years. Well, she's a real talker, isn't she? <laughs> Welcome to our series where we've been looking at the meaning of intimacy. And we're doing that out of the Song of Solomon. If you want to turn open there, you'll be ready. We're going to look at chapters 3, 4, and 5 today. Now, the next two weekends, we're going to be talking quite a bit to um, married couples. It's going to feel more like a seminar, less like a sermon, because there's some very practical tips I want to share out of this book. So how many married couples do we have in this service? Let me see your hands. All right, good. Now, next weekend, we're talking about how to deal with fights in a marriage. So if you're going to have a fight, have it this coming week, all right? So we can give you practical tips. Now, if you're single, you want to really listen because if you're single and you think you're going to get married someday, this is really going to help you as well. Get prepared for that. And if you're single here and you're thinking to yourself, well, I, you know, I've been married. I don't plan on getting married again, or I've never been married. Not sure I want to get married. I want you to listen in as well because you are more married than you realize. And I'll explain what I mean by that as a postscript in or after the message. Now, with all that said, whenever it comes to marriage, have you noticed that people have lots of advice to give you, especially if you're newly married? I think the best advice, however, comes from kids. So I saw some surveys where kids were asked questions. I want to share a couple of thoughts with you. Six-year-old Eric was asked, what exactly is marriage? And the six-year-old answered, marriage is when you get to keep your girl and don't have to give her back to her parents. <laughs> Eight-year-old Carol was asked, how does a person decide whom to marry? My mother says to look for a man who is kind. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look for a man who's kind of handsome and kind of tall. <clears throat> Five-year-old Bert was asked, what is the proper age to get married? And the five-year-old answered, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to find me a wife. <laughs> seven-year-old Will was asked, is it better to remain single or to get married? And seven-year-old Will said, it gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. <laughs> well, uh, it wasn't a headache for them. The king, perhaps King Solomon and his wife-to-be, the Shulamite, were now ready to begin their honeymoon, and they were excited about it. And we get to peek in to their wedding and their honeymoon, and we learn what I call five keys to building, or perhaps in some cases, rebuilding intimacy in your marriage, your relationship. So we're going to look at all five keys together, and the first key is simply this. 
It is the key to create anticipation. If you want intimacy in your marriage, you've got to create anticipation. Nathan Lawrence is a Jewish follower of Jesus. He's a Bible researcher and writer. And he gives us some very interesting background on ancient Hebrew weddings that I want to share with you. He said, in ancient Hebrew weddings, it began with the betrothal period. And the betrothal period is that time when the groom and his father negotiate with the bride and her father a dowry, a price to be paid for her. In those times, to lose a daughter was to lose a source of income for the whole family. So dowry had to be paid. Once the dowry was settled, then what would happen is the groom would, the potential groom would pour a glass of wine and hand it to the potential bride. And if she drank it, it meant the deal was sealed. And so she would drink it, the deal was done. She now belonged to him, though not physically yet. They were considered legally husband and wife, but could not live together and certainly couldn't practice any kind of physical intimacy. Then he would go back home for maybe a year or more and begin to build on his father's property his own home for he and his new bride. Sometimes it would be attached to the father's house itself. He had to pay particular attention to the bridal chamber. That is where they would celebrate their honeymoon. And they would be in there for seven days, so it had to be well stocked. Now, some scholars say that in that time, he did not see his bride, and she didn't see him. Although, if they're in a small village, it would be, you know, you would end up seeing each other at some point, at least in passing. She, on the other hand, stayed home and prepared herself for the wedding. She beautified herself. She got to, you know, pick out her bridesmaids and got the clothes ready. And when she went outside, she would wear a veil over her face. And that was a signal to all the other men that she was taken, that she had been bought, so to speak, and that she belonged to another. Now, nobody knows <clears throat> the date and the time of the wedding. And that's because it is up to the father of the groom to decide. He will tell his son when he thinks his son is ready, when the little apartment is done, that it's now time to go and fetch his bride. When he gives the signal and says, go fetch your bride, he takes off the groom with his groomsmen, and they make their way to where the bride lives, which could be just a few, you know, hundred yards away to several miles away, depending on where she is. She has to always be ready. She doesn't get a text. She doesn't get an email. She doesn't get a cell phone call saying, I'm coming, or it's going to be next week at 4 o'clock. So she hopes that it doesn't happen at night, but if he comes at night, she wants to make sure she has plenty of oil in her lamps so the fire can be lit. As they approach, they blow the shofar, this horn, this sound, which is an alert. I'm coming for you. She would get all dressed up and excited. He would come into the house, whisk her away, back to where the wedding would take place. They would each participate in a mikvah, a separate ceremonial bath of cleansing, they would come together. They'd have a private ceremony. They'd enter into the bedroom chambers there. The best man would stand outside. When the physical union had been consummated, the best man would be told. He would tell everybody else. Seven days later, the groom and bride emerge, and there is this feast, this supper, where all the guests are invited, and they have a great big party of celebration. We read about this. As Solomon comes for his bride in Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 6. It says, Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it, fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? Look, 
He has Solomon's carriage surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. They're all skilled swordsmen, experienced warriors. Each wears a sword on his thigh, ready to defend the king against an attack in the night. King Solomon's carriage is built of wood imported from Lebanon. Its posts are silver, its canopy gold, its cushions are purple. It was decorated with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Here he comes. Now, I want to ask all the wives and potential wives in the room a question. How many of you would be comfortable with an ancient Hebrew wedding? How many of you would be comfortable leaving your new home in the hands of your father-in-law and your husband-to-be? How many of you would be comfortable not knowing the date and time of your wedding? You just have to look pretty and be ready whenever it's going to happen because your father-in-law is going to decide when it's going to happen. How many of you would be comfortable leaving all the plans in somebody else's hands and you just show up pretty and ready to go? Let me see your hands. Not too many hands. How many of you women, you wives, want to be in control of your own wedding? Let me see your hands. My, how things have changed. Now it's we men who are waiting and wondering. I think we should go back to the biblical example of all of this. Of course, time changes, traditions, culture changes. I understand that. But even, even in modern days, your wedding is something you look forward to. At least it ought to be, or you shouldn't be getting married. It's something you anticipate. I remember when Marcia and I got engaged. We had a long engagement. I had to finish another year of school. She made this calendar, and as every day went by, she would check it off and check it off and check it off until we got down to the last 30 days. Then I got really excited, and we start checking them off. You get down to those last few boxes because there's anticipation, the wedding, the honeymoon, and starting life together and family and all your dreams and all your hopes and all your plans. Supposed to be anticipation of weddings. I did my um, oldest two kids, I did their weddings. My son's wedding, then my daughter's wedding. My son's wedding was easier for me to do. I didn't get emotional about it. Calm, cool, collected. My daughter's wedding, though, man, I had to psych myself up for that. That's my little girl I'm giving away. And, you know, I just told myself, I'm going to be a rock. I'm going to be okay. I walked her down the aisle. I gave her away. Uh, and then I ran up to the front and did the wedding. And... Um, I'm standing there, and I'm holding it all together until I find, and I mean, I'm talking to my daughter. I'm saying nice things to her. No, no tears. I'm doing great. And then I looked at my son-in-law, and I said to him, Pablo, I said, I have been praying for you all your life. And then <laughs> I got choked up. I couldn't talk, man, because I started to cry, right? Not like weeping and wailing, but just started to cry. And my daughter, whenever she gets nervous, she gets this massive grin on her face. So she's standing there just grinning at me, all right? <laughs> and my son-in-law, he starts to get choked up because I'm getting choked up, right? And it's like this awkward moment. And his brother, his best man, whispers loud enough for almost everybody to hear, Pablo, Puerto Rico, Pablo, Puerto Rico. That's where they were going for the honeymoon. <laughs> in, other words, in other words, don't forget. Get out of this. Focus on the honeymoon. Anticipation. <laughs> and then, of course, we, we, we all kind of laughed, and we moved on, with the, moved on with the wedding. Why should the honeymoon end at the ceremony? Why, why shouldn't we keep anticipation going? Why shouldn't we keep dreaming and hoping and looking forward to being with each other? Why shouldn't we keep dating as married couples? Why not surprises? Why not excitement? 
a man went to a marriage counselor and said, you know, I, I don't know, my marriage is really struggling, and I, I feel like it's dull, it's routine. The wedding counselor looked at him and said, or the marriage counselor looked at him and said, you need to put, you need to put surprise back in your wedding, or back in your marriage. You need to put anticipation back in your relationship. You need to woo your wife. You need to impress her. You need to, you need to make her feel like she's dating you once again. And so he took it really seriously, and he went out, and he bought a brand new suit that day. Put his suit on, you know, and the tie, and went out and bought a bottle of expensive cologne and sprayed it all over the place. And he went to Costco and bought a huge bouquet of flowers. He went and bought a big box of candy, and he went home early that day and parked in the driveway. He went up to the front of the house, and he rang the doorbell, and his wife opened the door, and she had like a strand of hair hanging in her face, and her clothes were dirty, and she looked kind of wilted, and she started to sob, and in between sobs, she says, oh, Johnny has been throwing up all day. The dishwasher is broken. And your parents called, and they said they're coming in this weekend. And to top it all off, you have to come home drunk. <laughs> Just couldn't imagine her husband doing something so special like that. What's the matter with you? It's not who you normally are. So here's your assignment, okay? Here's your assignment, married couples. Those of you are single think you might get married, remember this. I want you to, I want you to sit down sometime today all right, on this beautiful day, or go for a walk hand in hand, and I want you to talk about how you used to date, how you used to court each other. I want you to discuss what were your favorite dates? Why were they your favorite dates? What did you do? How did you act? What, did, you know, what was going on there? And then I want you to start to plan dates in your marriage. And I want you to start to relive those things. I want you to go back and do some of those things. And have joy and anticipation, surprise, and woo back in your relationship. Now, in our relationship, Marcia and I, you know, there are things that we need to improve and change, and, and there's things I should have done better and, and want to do better, but one of the things that we learned early on, and for some reason it has always stuck with us, is we've always kept, we've always kept a date, a date, we, a date night in our, in our week. We've missed it a few times, but generally speaking, we have a day when we have focused on each other. Even when we were raising kids and I was in busy ministry, we always made that a priority. It was the best thing we could do for ourselves and it was the best thing we could do for our kids. For them to see mom and dad still in love, laughing, having fun, does a tremendous amount of good for your kids. It's a model for them, but listen, it makes them feel secure. Because they see you in love with each other, all right? Second principle, second key, adore the one you love. Adore the one you love. Uh, let's look at the uh, first seven verses of chapter four. And I want you to see how Solomon adores his wife, in particular, his wife's body, all right? So here we go. <clears throat> Verse one, he says, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves beyond your veil, behind your veil. Notice he's saying your eyes are bright, alert, so innocent looking. He says your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. In other words, you know, it's an, agrarian, uh, it's an agrarian culture, so you got to understand it. He says, I see the white goats coming down the hill in the evening. Your hair flows just like them. He says your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth matched with its twin, which is remarkable given they didn't have dentistry back in those days, right? 
He's just like, wow, you have got a smile and your teeth are so even. I really like that. He says, your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. In other words, her lips are, are delicate and beautiful. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. He's adoring her complexion. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. The Tower of David was a military fortress. And I think what he's adoring is her integrity. He's adoring her character and how remarkable that is and how she's kept herself pure for this day, even when she was so tempted. She said, I will give away my vineyard when I choose to. Remember chapter 8? And then he gets very personal. He's doing head, you know, down. He says, your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. Now, let me ask you wives a question. How many of you wives, if your husband sat across from you, held your hands, and quoted this to you, or made up his own words, or wrote you a card in which he wrote down words like this, how many of you ladies would faint? Right? You'd be wondering, what is it he really wants? What is it you really want? New fishing rod, right? By the way, uh, fishing, or fishing opening in Minnesota is a mother. Is it like a Mother's Day weekend? Women, you should rebel against that. What is that all about? The man goes fishing on Mother's Day weekend, right? I mean, I don't, well, anyway, that's another, that's another session. Um, but, but notice how he uses his words to adore her body. Isn't it interesting when we were dating, right? When we were courting and falling in love, how we used our words to, to talk about what we loved about the other person, you know, their lips, their hair, their shape, their athleticism, their daintiness, their fragileness, their whatever it was, right? You know, we were just like, we were pouring it on, wooing them, trying to get them to come, you know, to, over to us, right? And us to them. And those complimentary words about each other made you feel so special. You wanted to be with a person who just thinks you're the most beautiful creature on earth. Right, ladies? I'm trying to help you out, ladies. <laughs> right, ladies? Yeah. And, oh, that's beautiful. And what man, what man doesn't want to be told how handsome and how strong he is? Right, guys? Yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. We're, we're together on this, all right? See, I can't do this to other services. They're not quite awake yet. You guys are, all right? Man and woman just want to hear that. But then we say, I do, and then we don't. And we take our words and we stop doing that, right? We stop doing that. We start ta- we stop using our words to adore each other and how beautiful you are, how handsome you are, how strong you are, etc. And you know, as we get older, uh, our bodies change. Our looks change to some degree, right? But we live in a culture that adores, that adores looks. Adores the, the 27-year-old guy, the 27-year-old girl that looked like models. And that's what we're supposed to be in order to be accepted. And guys, listen to me, because the women will affirm this. Women feel intimidated by that. Women have a tendency to compare themselves to that. And as you get older, you cannot keep up with that. Remember, that's all, a lot of that's computerized and airbrushed, right? It says impossible image. But when they hear and they see our eyes trailing after someone who looks like that, it begins to attack their soul, their sense of self-worth and value. Because you're not forever young and things change. We ought to be able to 
to adore the ongoing change, the ongoing how our beauty changes. Adore that. Point out and appreciate the uniqueness in each other. Instead of taking our words and using them for put-downs or criticisms or comparisons. When you, when you belittle your wife or your husband's looks or abilities, it's not just their body you're belittling, it's their soul as well. Body and soul are connected together. That's why we'll have a resurrected body. We were created that way. And so how do you use your words, guys? How do you use your words, ladies? Yeah, I read somebody the other day, and I thought what they said was accurate. They say you always marry the wrong person. Because that person you marry changes. And they change physically. And you got to be willing to marry that person for all those changes. And love them, no matter how that changes. But I don't want you to take that just as physical because it's attached to this next principle. The two go together, and that is the importance of admiration. He adores her body. He admires her character. He admires her virtues. He admires her integrity. He admires her discipline. So not only do I adore my wife throughout all the years of her life, I also adore her spirit, her soul. I use my words literally to lift her up to her spiritual potential. Just like when you raise kids. If you focus on your kids' faults, you're going to have problems with your kids. If you focus on their values, on their virtues, on their integrity, your kids will lean into what gets the praise and what gets celebrated. Same thing is true with our spouse. If you, if you praise, if you celebrate the godly virtues in their life, their integrity, the things that they do right, they will lean more towards that. But if all you do is nitpick about their faults, you're going to have problems. And that's what happens so often in our marriages. The longer we're married, we begin to know each other more. We begin to see those things. Those things irritate us. We change, and we start to nitpick, and I don't like this, and you do that, and why are you this way, and on it goes, and it just creates separation. It creates huge insecurity. Why not take your words and use your words to build up, not tear down? It'd just be good if you did that in general, don't you think? With your boss, with your, with your neighbors, with fellow employees, with strangers, why not take these beautiful things called words and call out the best in each other instead of pointing out the worst? What a revolution that would be. How are you doing with that in your own marriage? Could you decide today that that's how you're going to start to speak about each other? And that takes us to a fourth principle. That fourth principle is the importance of invitation, the importance of invitation. I mean, Solomon's a wise man, obviously, right? And he understands that his wife has insecurities. Can you imagine? I mean, she's a country girl. She's already feeling kind of self-conscious about the color of her skin. She's, you know, dark and calloused and whatnot. And she didn't grow up in the royal court. She's a, you know, she's kind of an out-of-towner. And am I going to fit in? Did everybody have a good time at the wedding? Is Solomon going to like me? Or is he going to, you know, not like me? And you can imagine all the things that were going on. And he invites her into his arms, and he invites her into security. He uses his words to let her know that he loves her for who she is, that she can bring her fears and her dreams, her insecurities to him, and she'll be safe. Listen to his words in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Come down from Mount Armana, from the peaks of Sinir and Hermon. 
where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills and others leave your fears. You have captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, my bride. Your love is better than wine, your perfume more fragrant than spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented like the cedars of Lebanon. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride. A secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Verse 16, awake, north wind. Rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden. Spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest fruits. Wow. He's just saying, I'm all about you. I'm in love with you. You are mine. You, you bring me delight. I treasure who you are. Leave your fears behind. Come, live in the security of this love. Over the years, I've done marriage counseling. I don't do much anymore. But I have oftentimes, in sitting down with married couples, they will eventually, at some point, start talking about how the physical relationship has dwindled and how they've kind of lost their passion and their romance. And a lot of times, it's because of insecurity, especially for the woman. The more secure a wife feels, the easier it is for her to be romantic and to love. But if she feels insecure, then she becomes defensive. And so, guys, we have to be careful with our words. We have to be careful with our actions. We don't want to give our wife a sense of insecurity. Even we don't intend to. I've got to always make sure, you've got to make sure that we're making our wives feel safe in this world especially. And as our wives get older, making them feel secure and know that we're not looking for the, you know, the younger model. And we value them. And we, they, we want them to feel safe with us. And we demonstrate that by the way we act and we speak to them. That, that will in itself cause the flame to burn brighter. Wouldn't you agree, ladies? Women desire security. And listen, ladies, men do as well. And want that security as well. And that's what we're to offer each other. And listen, when you offer that security to each other, it does so much for your kids. It does so much for your kids. Because if you're insecure, I guarantee your kids feel it. If your kids sense the marriage is insecure, that there's, things aren't going well, they're going to act out. And it's scary for them. Nothing is more comforting to them than when mom and dad are in love with each other. And that's why you got to put your marriage before your kid. The biggest mistake I see couples making in this culture is they put their kids ahead of their marriage. That's the worst thing you can do. Because you neglect each other, I guarantee you're going to have troubles. Best thing you can do for them is put your marriage as a priority. You'll make them feel so much more secure. Because when you're happy, they're happy. When you're in love and they sense that, and kids, man, they pick up the vibrations. I don't know how they do it. They know when there's tension. It relieves them. It relieves them. That takes us to our last principle. The fifth key, the blessing. The blessing. Here's what I mean. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 1. At the end of verse 1, there is a phrase that seems to be coming from somebody outside of the relationship. And it's a very important phrase. So chapter 5, verse 1. I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and eat honeycomb with my honey. I drink wine with my milk. Notice he's just having, he's just celebrating. He's, you know, he's in seventh heaven, so to speak. And then comes this strange line. O lover and beloved. In other words, O Solomon and Shulamite, eat and drink. 
Yes, drink deeply of your love. Who says that? Well, scholar Tim Gledhill in his commentary on the Song of Solomon says, and I quote, the last line of 5.1 where it says, lover and beloved, eat and drink, yes, drink deeply of your love, is an affirmation of the lover's activity. What they're doing is good, wholesome, right, and proper. Their abandonment in giving self is thoroughly approved and endorsed. These words are spoken by the author of the poem. He intrudes on the stage, as it were, to pass a comment on the action of the characters he has created. It is a literary device to indicate an external approval of the closing scene of intimacy. Now, some scholars think that Solomon wrote the story himself or that it was written about him. I believe ultimately it is written by God. It is authored by God. And I believe that last line is God's approval. It is God looking at the king and the, and the Shulamite and saying, I approve of this. I approve of your physical intimacy. I approve of how deeply you are enjoying one another's bodies and one another's emotions and one another's spirit and love. I am all for it. Son, daughter, drink deeply. Drink deeply. It is God's blessing. So let me ask you a question, those of you who are married folk. If your marriage were to be compared to a fire in the fireplace, is it burning hot right now? Or is there a cold draft in the house? Because you've been neglecting it. Bills and kids and busyness and work and extracurricular activities have taken over. And everybody else is being advantaged by your energy and your time, but you're disadvantaging the two most important people, you and your spouse. I want to challenge you to build back into your marriage, rekindle into your marriage that flame and that fire. I showed you how to do it today. Start to date each other again. Take an account of your words. Use your words to adore and to admire. Bring security into your relationship. Let your spouse know not once a year on your anniversary, but every day that they're safe with you. They matter to you, that you're there for them. Drink deeply of each other's love. Laugh again, dream again, hope again. That's what God wants for your marriage. Let me pray about that. Father, I just want to bring before you the marriages here at Wooddale Church and those who are watching online today. God, I pray and ask for strengthening. I pray and ask for healing in our marriages. I pray and ask for improvement in our relationships. I pray, God, that you would restore romance where romance has faded. I pray for those who are single and think that someday they may marry or remarry again, oh God, that you would lead them to a husband or to a wife that they can truly be in love with. And Father, for those, Lord, for whom perhaps marriage is not in the future, I pray that you'd help them become cheerleaders for those who are married. Lord, I pray and ask that you would restore this wonderful relationship that you've given to us. And ask this for your glory, for your honor, and for, Lord, our well-being, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, postscript. As I said, you know, if you're single, you're more married than you think. I want to talk again about the Hebrew wedding. And the reason I want to do that is because when you get the New Testament, Jesus patterns the second coming off of the stages of the Hebrew wedding. For instance, the stage when the father and the groom come and they offer a dowry for the bride. 
God has come and offered a dowry for you and me. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. What high price did God pay for you and me? He gave the blood of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could be ransomed from sin. Then we could belong to him. We belong to no other. We belong to him. Just as a groom goes to prepare a bridal chamber, a, a new home for his bride, Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, not to worry, not to fear, that he was going away, but he would return again. And while he was gone, he, was, he would be preparing a place for them. In verse 2, it says in John 14, there's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Someday, we're going to have a resurrected body. We're going to live on this new earth. I don't know what that's going to be like, but God is preparing something very unique and very special for us. I'm not saying there's pre-construction going on or construction taking place right now, but God has in mind something so wonderful for you and me. And just like the groom was unable to go and get his bride till his father said so, in Matthew 24, I think it's verse 36, when Jesus was asked, when are you coming? He said, only the father knows. But someday the father's going to say to his son, it is time. And the Easter sky will be split. And he's coming back to fetch his bride. The Bible calls Jesus the groom, the king. You and I, the church, we're the bride. And as individuals, we make up the church, the body. So we're all the bride of Christ. And he's coming back for us someday. Jesus said in verse 3 of John 14, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always, emphasis, always be with me where I am. Are you looking forward to that? That's anticipation. We're supposed to be anticipating the return of Christ, or are going to meet the Lord someday. Are you anticipating that? This earth is not my home. This is not my dwelling place. I'm passing through, the old songs used to say. There's a better place waiting for me. It's not a myth. It's reality. And listen to what happens when we get there. Chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, verse 6 says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting I don't know if you can hear yourself in the future but that's you hallelujah for our Lord God almighty reigns verse 7 let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come now is that ceremony now he's whisked us away now we have that ceremony we've been cleansed by him listen to what it says for the wedding of the lamb has come his bride has made herself ready Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so when our marriage, so to speak, with God is consummated, when we finally stand before him and we are perfected and we share in his glory, then there's going to be a party. Then there's going to be a celebration beyond anything we can imagine. Like a wedding feast, he says. And all of us will come together. And we'll all drink that second glass of wine. Remember what Jesus did at the Lord's Supper? He took that glass of wine. He said, I'll not drink this again until I come into my kingdom. Until we're all together. Just like the bride and groom in the ancient wedding, that first cup was given to the betrothal. The second cup was drunk. 
at the wedding itself. Man, we got a lot to look forward to. You are more married than you realize, aren't you? Are you anticipating? Are you looking forward to it? If this is a myth, if this is just a story, let's go home and not show up ever again. I understand this to be the word of God. And I understand this to be the reality that's waiting for each of us. And so I've asked the team to lead us in that song that's so familiar to all of us. Hope you won't walk out on it. How great thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. Wow. We have a lot to look forward to. Let's stand together as Emily comes and leads us in that song. That is why marriage is so sacred to God. Not to be sacred to us, because it is a picture 
of his relationship to you and me. And that's why we should hold it with great sense of sacredness as well. Because it matters so much to God. And that's why our marriage should be a picture to the world of the love of God. So I want you to work on your marriage this week. And I ask God to bless it and to encourage it as well.